This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. Hey everyone, I'm going to make this relatively short and sweet. Um, we don't have a guest this week uh, because of second order effects of, you know, booking issues the last month you know, with Labor Day weekend and what have you. And then to be perfectly honest, I myself had kind of a monumental week. So um, that's a long way of saying this will be a short episode. Um, but hopefully a little substantial. I want to talk about something and I'm going to speak in order to understand. Um, I don't have, I have more questions than I have answers on this subject, but I also have some observations I'd like to make and throw out there as brain candy for you guys. So, it is interesting to me how the military and veteran community perceives and talks about Ukraine. And in this day and age where everything has become so, no pun intended, in 2023, binary, where everything has to be left or right, or, you know, um, you know, if you have a certain color, then that means you believe a certain thing. Uh, if you, you know, agreed with masking during COVID, then that probably means you agree with 15 other laws, dictums, customs, whatever. And these become shibboleths that have obviously fractured us into different tribes and all that. And I'm not going to go on a big, uh, you know, a lot of people have covered that ground. I don't need to recover that myself right now. But it is interesting the Rorschach test that Ukraine has been in the military and veteran community. 
And I want to look at this from a couple of different angles. So there was a time not very long ago <laughs> where it was pretty well understood that Russia was an aggressive bad guy, uh, not just amoral, but committing immoral acts of aggression in and around um, its borders. And that obviously, you know, led to that famous Mitt Romney moment in the debates against Barack Obama, where Barack Obama delivered the line, both as ignorant as it was glib, that, hey, Mitt, the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back um, because Mitt Romney identified Russia as the number one geopolitical threat that the U.S. was facing in 2012. Of course, Romney was proved, if not, if Russia was the number one geopolitical threat at the time, it certainly was the most um, kinetically aggressive at the time because very shortly thereafter, Russia um, did a charm offensive by holding the Sochi Olympics. And then two weeks after the Sochi Olympics ended, uh, moved swiftly into Crimea and, um, you know, started exerting stronger degrees of hegemony over eastern Ukraine and annexing portions of it there. And many of us in the community, I believe, thought that there might be a hot war in Ukraine very, very soon. You had Maiden Square. You had, uh, you know, large Ukrainian uprisings. I mean, there was that was real tension. and. We were all pretty aware that the threat that Russia posed. I don't want to blame everything on Trump. And by blame, I don't necessarily mean attribute blame to him. I just mean Trump certainly, if nothing else, was a disruptor and disrupted a lot in foreign policy as well. One of the things he disrupted was lines of coherent foreign policy um, stances where people that used to believe one thing made carve outs, exceptions to either agree with Trump or disagree with Trump. And, um, part of that became, you know, the Russia gate scandal and all this that seems to have endeared certain Trump supporters to Russia. Uh, there's just very mixed lines where now it, it, the, the foreign policy outlook isn't as clear-cut from the veteran community. I'm saying all this as a way of prefacing that when we get to Ukraine now, there should not be a question in anyone's mind how righteous our actions are there. And by righteous, I mean it's the right thing to do on multiple levels. For one thing, it has become such a quagmire for Russia. Now, we'll see how that ends up and, you know, if Russia has to do some extreme face-saving measure or what have you, but militarily and strategically, it has been a and politically, it has been a disaster for Russia. We justifiably in the United States have done a lot of hand-wringing over the 6,000 7,000 plus soldiers that we lost over the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, and there's nothing wrong with that. But look how many people Russia, look how many soldiers Russia has lost in the brief, what, two years-ish that it has been actively kinetic in Ukraine. 
I mean, are we over a hundred thousand now? I mean, it's insane. And the way that they have, so, I mean, the fact that they're a, not as good at warfare, B completely show the callousness and disregard of the, let's say elites to the common soldier willing to sacrifice waves upon waves upon waves through a war of attrition. And the fact that they have not accomplished what they set out to do, yet have remained belligerent, aggressive, and looking for any and all ways to right this ship through pure violent force. In other words, they have been almost a caricature of a lot of the most self-flagellating talk that we in the veteran community like to throw at our own government about Iraq and Afghanistan. That act, that, that rhetoric, that level of mistrust, hate, resentment, and all is exponentially, and by exponents of a hundred, great uh, magnitudes of a hundred greater in the case of Russia. So there should be no doubt of who's the bad guy in this equation. Just because somebody's a bad guy doesn't mean that Ukraine is perfect. Everyone knows, of course, there's corruption in Ukraine, yeah, blah, 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 whatever. But unlike Iraq and Afghanistan, it is a war that we are fighting by proxy so that not one U.S. soldier on active duty, yes, there are retired people over there helping out, but there's not one active duty U.S. soldier that has to be put, at least overtly, in harm's way. In Ukraine, and we are able to fight this war at, if not a reduced amount of treasure, although it is a reduced amount of treasure, certainly a reduced amount of blood. And for that price, we get to watch Russia cripple itself in Ukraine. That is foreign policy through and through. Now, just like, now what's funny to me is to hear people in the veteran community mimic almost the 1960s um, you know, anti-war movement call of, um, hey, you know, uh, less bombs, more babies, or what was the, what was the <laughs> I'm messing up my slogans. It's late at night when I'm recording this. Bear with me. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, beans, not bullets. Uh, you know, imagining that if we just weren't spending money in Ukraine, somehow we could therefore be helping out more in Maui. And those come from different buckets. Those two are completely um, mutually exclusive budget-wise. That, that's, that's not how this works. But it's funny that knowledgeable, experienced veterans are saying this as though this is the trade-off, as though if only we were paying attention to um, our domestic woes, um, or we're not paying attention to our domestic woes because of what's going on in Ukraine. That's an interesting and I'm stunned to say naive take, and not just a naive take, but a regurgitated one, one that has been proffered by truly ignorant you know, anti-war counterculture people going back to the 60s, um, that's just not how the line items and the budgets worked. So there's no doubt about the righteousness 
There should be no doubt about the righteousness of our cause. If we're going to have foreign policy at all, unless you just don't believe the United States should have a foreign policy, and even without using military force, should not have any involvement, financial, logistical, what have you, in any world affairs, which is a ludicrous posture to hold in this day and age of globalization and the world, you know, being so claustrophobic and, you know, a pinch in one corner of the world, having an ouch in a different part of the world, you know, we're, we're there's no way we're breaking free from the, uh, the grip of geopolitics. But if you want to have that utopian view, fine. I think you're ludicrous, but so be it. So I believe that it should be very clear who's good and who's bad. In other words, which is the side worth supporting and to what end and at what cost and which is the side not worth supporting and being antagonistic towards. With that, there's a report on CNN. And I know, it's CNN. So take that with the appropriate grains of salt. But it lines up with a lot of Let's call it anecdotal substantiation, uh, and and uh, that would not surprise me. Um, again, I don't think that people, even veterans, that haven't been exposed to the depths of the alphabet soup, are fully aware of how much foreign influence occurs, and especially when it comes to foreign policy. And CNN's headline is, Newly Declassified U.S. Intel Claims Russia is Laundering Propaganda Through Unwitting Westerners. To be fair, that headline could have been written at any point in the last 60 years. Uh, That has been an ongoing concern. Going, I mean, even that old trope that AIDS was, uh, or that uh, crack was started in the ghetto to kill black people, that was Kremlin propaganda. Yeah, I mean, there's been one trope after another that, Uh, The Soviets and now the Russians have continued to launder through either unwitting sources or witting sources in the United States. And I can get into some of the substantiation of that on a different episode, but um, that is an easily, (laughs) that's easily, if you, if you're, if you have any doubts about that, a simple Google search and look through tons of different content on tons of different platforms and you should be more than satisfied. My point in bringing this up is that these campaigns were aimed, as the article says, to plant Russian narratives in the Western press, which is pretty crucial because Russia is so overtly in the wrong here. Maxim Grigoriev, who heads a Russian NGO, made multiple speeches to the UN presenting a false study that claimed the humanitarian group, the White Helmets, which operates in Syria, was running a black market for human organs and had faked chemical attacks by Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, with whom Russia is allied. Those claims eventually found their way into a television report on OAN in the United States. In a lengthy response that included photographs and details of his reporting in Syria, the OAN reporter said he stood by his reporting and stated that it was based on first-hand accounts from trips to Syria that were not organized by Russian agents. Um, My point in saying this is this is, and let's just stipulate, 
you can quibble with the article. You can doubt it. You can doubt the source. That's fine. We know that Russia is certainly attempting to influence the narrative, and we do know there is a lot of confusion in the military and veteran community, uh, confusing narratives about how people should be feeling about Ukraine and Russia and our role there. The fact, and I said, Trump being a disruptor, again, I'm staying out of just domestic politics, but I'm just looking at him as a disrupting element. It disrupted a lot of lines um, of established foreign policy thought, certainly, and, and domestic policy thought too, for that matter. But let's stay with the foreign policy for right now. So, I so right now there's a fuzziness, there's a lack of clarity, there's an opacity with a lot of voices that I'm hearing from the veteran and military community. Okay. Let me pause on that. Here's where I'm going with this. The flip side of all this, and what's interesting to me, is who is supporting the war in Ukraine. And let me be clear about what I mean by that. I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, approving line items, although there's that too, um, or, or going out and volunteering or doing charitable causes. I'm just talking about flags. I'm just talking about pure rah-rah go get To wander the streets of the Northeast, as I have, well, as I do, I guess, every day, but certainly um, I had to travel up to Boston a little while ago, you know, um, and, and going to different big cities. If you see an American flag, there's a whole host of assumptions you can make about the person that's flying it. It has become a political statement to fly the American flag. But to fly a Ukrainian flag is ubiquitous in big cities. And I guess in its own way, it has become its own sort of shibboleth, its own sort of marker as to where you stand. And what's interesting to me, and this is anecdotal, and I tried researching this, and it's tough to find any kind of empirical data on this, but so I'm just going to have to be anecdotal with this. But what's interesting to me is how many people are virulently supporting Ukraine who actively campaigned against U.S. involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. These are the people that had bumper stickers that said, war is not the answer, coexist, no blood for oil. They're the ones flying the Ukrainian flag. Again, not I'm I'm, I'm speaking in broad brushstrokes. That's a very that's a very interesting and underreported and undercommented on sociological and geopolitical shift in thought because a lot of the people I see flying these Ukrainian flags again, anecdotally and painting with a broad brushstroke, but a lot of them aren't people that ever served in the military, have any military involvement. We're talking about big city people, artists. Now, there's a there's a comic, uh, I, I'm going to steal his joke, and I, I need to remember his name before I do. Fish? Something Fish? I can't remember. On Instagram, but he had a great joke about if an alien landed in Brooklyn right now, they would think they 
had just landed in gay Ukraine because all you see is gay flags and Ukrainian flags. And um, it's a great joke because it is very true. These are big hubs of relatively, um, let's say, geopolitically inexperienced, unexposed people that have kind of signed on to rah-rah rooting for the war in Ukraine. And I find that fascinating because we've had a war going on for the past 20 fucking years, and I never once saw any of them flying an Afghan flag or an Iraqi flag, or for that matter, an American flag in support of our operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, you might say, and I'm giving, I'm, I'm arguing, going to try to argue this from both sides because as I say, I'm thinking out loud here. Maybe they are all geopolitical wonder kinds, and we're simply waiting for the moment when we were going to fight a war by proxy without putting our troops in harm's way, and that's what they're giving lip service to. I don't believe that. That's not what I've seen, and again, anecdotally, that's not at all what I'm hearing. But theoretically, you could make that argument that that is a big difference. But it's also, and one of the reasons I don't believe that, though, is because of the way that they speak about the war in Ukraine. And they wring their hands and they talk about the humanitarian effects and how brave the Ukrainian soldiers are. And they'll say this to me, to a veteran, or to other veterans that I've seen. And I go, motherfucker, do you realize you're talking to people that have been fighting in wars under your flag for the past 20 years? And this Ukrainian flag is what you're going to start shedding tears tears for? This is what's going to get your blood up? This is what's going to get you to tear down your war is not the answer bumper sticker? And by the way, what happened to war is not the answer? Was it just because you're, you've been trained to be so reflexively anti-American that just whenever America's involved in a war, then war is not the answer, but other countries are held to a different standard? It's an incredibly fascinating, not even geopolitical shift, it's a sociological shift because I, I, it's not like these are people that have suddenly become that much more geopolitically aware. They're not that much more in tune with foreign policy. They didn't suddenly just get smart on Ukraine and Crimea and Russia and, and you know the geopolitics of Eastern Europe. These are people that are reflexively, knee-jerkly putting up a Ukrainian flag and have been doing so now for several years. And as I say, they're in the right. I have no problem with it. I agree with them. I'm just amazed that there's been so little discussion and I, and, and so little um, curiosity about how they suddenly became militant in favor of hundreds of thousands of dead Russians, and again, hundreds of thousands of dead Ukrainians, including civilians and all that, you know, massive amounts of death. And suddenly, they're all for it. Whereas when we were at, when we, their neighbors, their countrymen, were fighting for 20 years, people didn't even know we were over there. I remember standing in church in 2012, and a man was standing right next to me telling his son that we were no longer in Afghanistan. 
And these are the people that are just absolutely up in arms in favor of Ukraine. That's just amazing to me. Again, not wrong, but it's a stunning and undercommented on phenomenon that I'm very curious about. And I'm curious about the root causes and as to why that is. My, the cynical part of me wants to attribute it simply to political, to the political binary. That if OAN and Newsmax and Fox News were telling people to support Ukraine, these people would all take their Ukrainian flags flags down tomorrow. It depends who you're listening to. That's a very cynical and glib thought that I'm just pulling out of my ass here. At the same time, I go... Shit, Occam's razor. Sometimes that's the simplest. The simplest answer might be the right one. And I don't know. I know these are not people that got infinitely smarter, wiser, and understand the nuances of geopolitics suddenly, just like that. I want to say one other thing about this, and I've said this before in different ways, talking about it from different angles. But in this case. There is, people love war, especially people that like to talk about peace, especially people that love talking about how anti-war they are. They're not anti-war. They might be anti a certain war. They might say they're anti-war, but they're not. They're looking for a righteous cause. They're looking for a noble fight. There is something in the human DNA that wants a noble, worthy fight. They want a protest. You know, I, I remember when I was working as a private security um, uh, assignment in downtown L.A. during the Occupy Wall Street protests. And, um, you know, this is, you know, the heart right when Helmand is happening, you know, and, you know, the Afghanistan is ramping up with a surge. And um, Black Bloc, the forerunners of Antifa, because I don't think they were called Antifa then. You know, came walking through and started um, roughing up the news crew that I was protecting. And it was the one time I ever had to get physical on that particular job. And I remember thinking, God damn, motherfuckers, there's actually a war you could go fight right now if you want to fight something. But that's not where you're going to go. Instead, you're going to be militantly peaceful here. And let me tell you something, that Occupy Wall Street in L.A., when... LAPD had to go through that city hall park and clean it out. The amount of upper middle class naked white people tripping on shrooms, standing in trees, pissing on people, fecal matter, you know, an inch to three inches thick at your feet. It was disgusting. It was an absolute shit show. Those people weren't there for peace. They were there for something else. They were there for a noble cause. They weren't all fighting. But they were there for they were there for a fight. Maybe they didn't have the testicular fortitude to throw punches. Trust me, many did. But there was definitely some they wanted to find their righteous cause. And I wonder if you support. Again, I'm thinking out loud here. But if you had if 
if the people flying Ukrainian flags right now had supported the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to the same extent that they did with the war in Ukraine, the obvious question that would come to them is, why aren't you fighting then? And there's an inherent cowardice if you're going to embrace a patriotic pose and yet you don't go be part of that fight. Whereas with Ukraine, you can talk as big a game as you want and no one is expecting you to go enlist. No one's expecting you to get on a plane and fly to Ukraine and volunteer. That societal pressure is completely off. And now you can be as righteous as you like. But we're looking. Mankind, Gen Z, millennials, people in urban centers, and people in rural centers. Everybody. There's something inherent in all of us that wants a noble fight. The key is to figure out what is worth fighting for, which was the subject of the last time I did one of these solo episodes. So I won't get into that right now, but my point being, it's interesting to me. And I guess my, my last thought that I'll kind of lead to here, as much as I agree with the people flying flags for Ukraine and supporting Ukraine, there is a part of me that is hurt Because of how quickly those flags went up in support of Ukraine, where none flew for Afghanistan following the withdrawal, during the withdrawal. The second the Doha peace talks were on in 2019, people didn't even know we were there. People may not even have known we were there up until Abbey Gate. And even then, some people, I just talked to even a veteran the other day who actually works at the VA. He didn't even know about Abbeygate. That's how out of the loop he was. And that's not a ding on him. I get it. People have lives and whatever. I mean, you know, it happens. But that's how little this was tracking with the American public. And to be personal about it, to those of us, and I'm thinking of my friend Scott Mann, and many of the other people that I met in the course of trying to do good in Afghanistan. There are a lot of people that sacrificed a lot at the end to help Afghanistan and to help our, our reputation and our honor and our promises in Afghanistan at the end. And that's on top of all the people that for 20 years have been trying to do good in Afghanistan. Let's not minimize their sacrifice either. But even at the very bitter end, there were those of us who made significant sacrifices that I'm not prepared to talk about yet for myself. And there were blank stares, complete cognitive dissonance from the people around me in my day-to-day life who couldn't possibly comprehend, didn't want to comprehend, didn't know enough to comprehend, just spaced. But Ukraine happens and holy shit, flags go up 
Now everybody's on board. And that's fascinating to me. And there, look, there are, you know, again, Ukraine is fighting. As we all know, the Afghan military crumbled quickly for multiple reasons. I'm not going to go back in and relitigate the end of the Afghan war, but definitely a different country. And I know that the military advisors that have worked in both Ukraine and in Afghanistan and Iraq are like, yeah, culturally, the the unity of the Ukrainian people shows up on the battlefield a lot more, hence why it's been such a one of the many reasons it's been so difficult for Russia. So in, in those ways, it's a more sympathetic force, a more sympathetic country to get behind, a more sympathetic cause to get behind, um, better ROI for your money, perhaps, you could argue. But again, anecdotally, painting with a broad brush, none of these fucking people know that, that are flying flags. These are knee-jerk responses. And again, I'm being anecdotal. But it's a fascinating dichotomy. It's a fascinating, stunning, jaw-dropping, gobsmacking pivot in the way that so many of a certain type of person in this country has started to view war writ large and is viewing Ukraine versus how we not only viewed Afghanistan and Iraq, but talked about Afghanistan and Iraq. It is so much more common to hear laudatory words and ringing praise about the brave Ukrainians than we ever heard about the brave Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan. When it came to Iraq and Afghanistan, our vocabulary was completely regurgitated from Vietnam. Oh, the poor soldiers. Oh, these victims. Oh, the, the way the government is just you know using and abusing them and betraying them. And That was the rhetoric that we were hearing. Not when it comes to Ukraine. And let's be clear. I mean, Ukraine, as much as is the righteous side in the fight for Russia, and their leaders are nowhere near as good, considerate, competent, worried about collateral damage as ours were. We're the most conscientious military that's ever existed. There is no other military in human existence that has worked as hard to minimize collateral damage and second and third order effects of war. None. None. And I can point to a laundry list of crimes and misdemeanors that the United States has committed in the acts of, of wars that I've been, uh, they have you know, witnessed or, or seen and, or, you know, have firsthand knowledge of. And I can look at all that and go, great. What country's done better? What country's done better? What country has ever done more to try to minimize those second and third order effects? And God bless people like Hunter seven and organizations like that that are going back in and really trying to, you know, hospital corners all the those loose, awful, um, you know, uh, uh, sloppy effects of war and and the toll it's taken on the warfighters. 
You know where you're not going to see 107? Any other fucking country on the planet, though. So as much as we don't want to break our arms patting ourselves on the backs, we also don't want to break our arms punching ourselves in the ass. You know, it's important for us to have perspective and go, nobody's done it better. 20 years of war. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but, you know, stunning how little life was lost considering how long we were there and how much we did that was positive. Couldn't get an American to talk about it, though. Then you're just a jingoistic, naive asshole. Nope. Got to save up the laudatory praise for those brave Ukrainians. Fly your flag proud, but don't fly your American flag, because then you're, what, a bigot? Naive? Jingoistic? Xenophobic? What are you? No, fly the Ukrainian flag, because you will never be called upon to act on it. There's a price for being a patriot. If you want to fly your American flag, then you're because we're in a war, somebody's going to call you out and say, great, why aren't you over there fighting? Oh, well, you see what had happened was don't have that pressure when you're flying a Ukrainian flag, do you? I realize I'm ending this on a kind of downer, cynical, pointed note. And I don't, I was going to say I don't mean to, but uh, I guess I, I don't, I didn't know I was going to end up striking that tone. As I say, I'm thinking this out loud right now. But it bothers me. Um, it bothers me. The lack of thought. The knee-jerk response and the way that people just knee-jerk respond to an anti-war or a pro-war stance instead of having a consistent look at the risks, the rewards, the pros, the cons, and um, actually get smart on something. Um, And certainly coming so close on the heels of the Afghan withdrawal to turn around and suddenly be super pro-war for something that, that wasn't the war we'd been fighting for 20 years. When you had, when you couldn't be bothered to come to a Veterans Day parade or hold a Memorial Day service. But you'll fucking, you know, wear blue and blue and yellow every chance you get to talk about the brave Ukrainians. And again, I agree with them. I agree. I'm fucking glad we're doing what we're doing in Ukraine. I'm not one of the naysayers. I'm on their side. I'm with them. But it's an interesting dynamic. So I hope I hesitated about recording this in the first place. It's been a rough week for me, folks. I'm not going to lie to you personally, Um, which is neither here nor there. Not trying to get maudlin or, or, you know, uh, this is not, you know, my chance to talk about myself. Um, But I wasn't sure, A, I had the stamina. B, that I'd have the vocabulary, or C, um, I just knew this subject matter was going to be so anecdotally based, and that can always, you know, veer far afield of empirical fact. The problem is, is what we're talking about 
is pretty much anecdotal. <laughs> there's not, you know, there's not a lot of studies done on on why the the public shift has been the way it's been. Um, so it's just the view from my foxhole. So take it for that. From where I'm sitting, this is how it looks. And it's interesting. The cognitive dissonance to me is interesting. The dichotomy is interesting. And I hope it gave you guys something to think about. All right, guys. Hey, it's Suicide Prevention Month out there. Um, so let me wrap this episode up uh, by saying... Gotta punch up this text message. But uh there if you're in the New York City area, my friend Paul Tangy uh at um Fordham University uh sent me this and I'm calling him out by name. He's the head of the military science program there. Um uh active duty lieutenant colonel, a very smart guy, and he forwarded me the uh, Veterans Mental Health Summit. September twelfth from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Fordham University at Lincoln Center in New York City. Um, I'll push this out on social as well, so you'll see it out there. If you're in the New York City area, I mean, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., that's a lot of information, a lot of resources, a lot of stuff that's there and available to you. New York City is not the most military-friendly town in the country. And by that, I mean, you know, it's not one of those places that's easy to always access things for veterans and military personnel. So the fact this is happening at Fordham University in at Lincoln Center in a very centralized location, New York City, is a pretty big deal. Um, so go down and and check that out. I want to make sure to give that a shout out. Um, we started off this episode, as always, by thanking this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. I now want to take a second and thank this episode's other sponsor, my own organization, Veterans Repertory Theater. You guys should know the spiel by now, but if you don't, Go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Uh, while you're there, you'll see all the lines of effort we have going on. The best thing you can do to stay on top of everything we're doing and see what we have coming up is scroll a little bit down our homepage and you'll see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog. When you do that, you will receive in your email inbox every day writing. Poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction from veterans, just a little bit, followed by a bunch of shameless plugs for all the different things we have going on that you should be aware of. Um, so we're dangerously close to a thousand subscribers. We'd love you to be um, count yourselves among that number, push us over into four figures. Uh, that would be very cool since we've only been around for 10 minutes, uh, but we're very aggressive. We have a lot of programming, a lot of really cool shows that we're doing um, constantly, and you should know about them. So go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P dot org. Okay, I need to thank Mike Neal for producing this episode, as always, at the last minute. Um, truly, uh, Mike has immense amount of grace and patience, and I deeply appreciate it. Um, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, see you next time. We talk to somebody besides me for another profile in Havoc.